You might find it helpful to have your Bibles open at Acts 12. We'll be working through these 17 verses and thinking of the story in the earliest church. Prison Break was one of the very first big American TV drama box sets that I can remember breaking in to the UK market. Eventually, it would go on to become a global phenomenon. The series told the story of two brothers. One brother was falsely accused of a crime, sentenced to death, and finds himself on death row. His other brother comes into the show with an elaborate plan to help him break out of prison. The story was gripping and eventually went on for five seasons. If you've never heard of Prison Break, chances are you've come across the movie The Great Escape with Steve McQueen. Even though it's largely agreed that there are many historical inaccuracies in the story, it's regarded as one of the best war movies ever made, telling the true story of how Allied soldiers escaped from a German prisoner of war camp. There's something about these stories of escape that we find exciting and interesting. This morning we're going to come to consider another story of Prison Break, another great escape, if you like. It's a story that is every bit as gripping, I think, as the TV series, and even more historically accurate than the great escape. As we unpack Acts 12 together this morning, what we're going to see is we're going to encounter some more of the characters in the earliest church where we have met. Many of the characters we will come across this morning are not the stars of the church, if you like, but they're more supporting actresses, supporting actors who played seemingly small yet vital roles in the development and the growth of the earliest church. A few weeks ago when we were looking at the life of Stephen and his stoning, we noticed that with the death of Stephen, there was this growth in the church. But with that growth came persecution. And as the persecution increased, growth came. And as growth came, persecution also came. And now again, at the start of Acts 12, Luke, who's writing here, tells us of how James, the brother of John, has now been put to death. James was the first of the apostles, the first of Jesus' inner circle, the first of the senior leaders in the church, if you like, to be put to death. This was Herod and the authorities striking at the very heart of the early church. Perhaps they hoped if they could decapitate the leadership, then maybe the church would just filter out. James was put to death, and when Herod realizes that it pleases the Jews, people are happy at what's going on, he goes to another one of Jesus' inner circle. He arrests Peter and places him in jail, but can do nothing with him until after Passover. But we can be in no doubt that Herod's plan is to have Peter executed. Of course, this isn't Peter's first stint in jail. In Acts 5, we read how the high priest and some of his associates threw Peter into prison for no other reason than they were jealous. And on that occasion... The Lord sent an angel, just as he did here, to rescue Peter and brought him out. But Herod must have heard about this miraculous escape, because this time it appears Herod is taking no risks with Peter. Peter is being held under some of the heaviest security. Every night, squads of four soldiers, 16 men in total, would stand guard over him. Two were chained to him, 
two more stood on guard at the door. Here's Peter, heavily guarded, sitting on death row with no apparent hope of escape. A few years ago, the BBC made a fly-on-the-wall kind of documentary called Life on Death Row. told the story of many of the Americans who find themselves on death row waiting execution. In one sense, the show was a fascinating insight into a world that is totally hidden. But in a totally different way, it is utterly heartbreaking to watch. Consider especially so many young people who face the reality of their impending death. The documentary shows the sorrow, the tension, the anxiety that many of those in death row feel and the cycle of all of those things that they go through. So three little words in verse 6 of Acts 12 strike me as surprising as Peter waits on death row. Because we read that Peter was sleeping. Here he is in jail on death row and he's sleeping. How can he sleep at a time like this? I think Peter's sleep demonstrates his absolute faith, his trust in the sovereignty of God. He knew he was content that God had him right where he wanted him. I'm sure Peter probably didn't understand what he was doing there, maybe even questioned why he was back in prison again. I'm sure he thought this was a strange way for the church to grow to the ends of the earth. But still, he sleeps. David Murray is a pastor and a biblical counselor in the United States. And he writes this, he says, Few things are as theological as sleep. Show me your sleep pattern, and I'll show you your theology. Because we all preach a sermon in and by our sleep. Show me your sleep pattern, and I'll show you your theology. Dave Murray goes on to explain that insomnia and sleeplessness is on the rise. On an average, people today are getting significantly less sleep than in previous generations. And in fact, for many people in many spheres, how little sleep we get becomes a badge of honor, something to boast about. Wasn't it Margaret Thatcher who back in the 80s boasted that she only needed four hours of sleep? Sometimes I think we're tempted to believe that we are superhuman. But Murray goes on to explain that when we pride ourselves on only sleeping for five hours at night, he says what we're really saying is, yes, I believe God is sovereign. I believe God is in control. But I don't totally trust him to take care of everything without my help. Now, there's legitimate medical reasons why we may not sleep. That's not what I think Murray's talking about. He's talking about those times whenever we neglect sleep because we think, I need to do this now, and if I don't do it now, the world will fall apart. You ever felt like that? Or whenever we're staying awake for so long that we're actually putting our relationships under strain and our families under pressure. If we're awake without a good medical reason, I think we need to stop and ask ourselves why that is. Because even if we've never suffered from insomnia, I'm sure we can all think of a time when we've encountered a problem at work. Our relationships have been strained. Maybe we're stressing over finance. Serious health worries have come in or we've got a big decision coming up. And what do we do? What do I do? I lie awake at night. I fret 
and I worry. And if we're honest, most of the time we don't think it's an apparently big deal. Dave Murray goes on to say that by sleeping, we are relinquishing control and reminding ourselves, at least for a few hours, that God actually doesn't need us. No, often I think that's why we find it hard to sleep at times of stress and worry. It's because if we're really honest, we're refusing to relinquish the control of our lives. To fully trust God is both a sovereign Lord and a loving Father. In Psalm 3 that we read together earlier in our call to worship, David writes, I lay down and slept. I woke again. Why? Because the Lord sustained me. That appears to have been the attitude of Peter's heart. Even in jail on death row, he was able to lie down and sleep and know he would wake again because the Lord sustained him. And that also can be the attitude of our hearts this morning because God certainly has not changed. Whatever is on our hearts and minds, whatever things keep us awake at night, we can hand them over to him and lay down our heads and sleep, trusting that he will ultimately sustain us. Peter is sleeping. And suddenly, into that dark dungeon, it floods with light and an angel appears. The light fills the cell, but Peter is clearly in a deep sleep because the light doesn't wake him up. And in fact, it's almost comical, isn't it? The angel has to whack him on the side to wake him up. Peter, obviously not a morning person, struggles up, rubs his eyes and groggy, has to be given step-by-step instructions by the angel how to get dressed. As I read verse 8 this week, it was like a picture into a Thursday morning will be like in our house trying to get the kids out to school. Put on your socks, get your pinafore on the right way, that's your sister's cardigan. The angel's almost treating him like a child, doesn't he? Get up, get dressed, do all of these things. But eventually, the angel sorts Peter out, gets him ready, leads him through the doors, past the prisoners, and almost as suddenly as the angel appeared, the angel leaves. And it's only at this point, we're told, that Peter realizes what has actually happened. This hasn't been a dream or a vision. Peter is actually free. Can you picture him? Standing in the street, now free, fully aware of what has happened. When he realizes he's free, he runs off to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark. That little detail of where Peter goes when he's been set free is really instructive and insightful for us. It seems like a little comment to throw away, but it actually gives us a picture into life in the early church. Because homes and houses to those first Christians were incredibly significant. Some people think that this house of Mary's was maybe the place where the Last Supper took place. It may have been the place where the prayer meeting before Pentecost took place. Most of that's speculation. But the one thing we can know for certain is that Mary's home was the place where Christians met for prayer and worship. From the earliest days of the church, Christians gathered together to pray together. All the miraculous events of the previous verses, the angel breaking into the cell, getting Peter out, past all those people and out of lock gates was a product of the church's prayers. Look at verse 5. When Peter's taken into prison, what does the church do? They don't go and try to hatch some kind of prison break plan like in the TV show. 
They stop and they pray. Verse 12, we're told again that there the people prayed. So we read through, and as we have been reading through the book of Acts, we get this picture that the earliest Christians were people who were deeply committed to prayer, not just privately and individually, but publicly and corporately. They were people who met together to pray. In this season of deep and dark persecution for the church, what are the church doing? They're praying. Someone has said that if an army marches on its stomach, the church advances on its knees. In his little book, Why Revival Tarries, Leonard Ravenhill says that the prayer meeting has become the Cinderella of the church. That was written well over 60 years ago, and little has changed. It's a powerful image, isn't it, of how we in the modern evangelical church have come to neglect the place of prayer in both public and a private life, but particularly that sense of corporate prayer together. In the 19th century, C.H. Spurgeon was pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. The church experienced significant growth, so pastors would come from all over England and even Europe to come to ask Mr. Spurgeon, what was the secret of your thriving church? When these visitors would come, perhaps expecting a plan, or a lesson in church strategy, Spurgeon would take them to the basement. In the basement, they would find a prayer room where people were always on their knees interceding. Spurgeon called that little room in his church the powerhouse of the church. And he would say to the people who came, if the engine room is out of action, then the whole mill will grind to a halt. We cannot expect blessing if we do not ask. I wonder this morning, do we realize that our prayers are powerful and effective? That they were strong enough to break down the security plan of Herod, to blind guards and open gates to bring Peter free. In the 1500s, Mary, Queen of Scots, famously said, I fear John Knox's prayers more than an army of 10,000 men. Even this queen who sought to thwart and suppress the gospel in Scotland, realized the power of prayer. Do we realize that power this morning? We live in a time when seem, things seem bleak and dark for the church and for our culture. And often I hear people saying, what can we do? And I am more and more convinced that the most vital thing for the church to discover today is to recapture the priority of corporate prayer to pray together, trusting that the God who promised Solomon at the opening of the temple, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, if they will pray and seek my face, I will hear and forgive their sin and heal their land. God has not changed. He still keeps his promises. The early church we see were a group of believers deeply committed to prayer. But before we idolize these early Christians too much for their prayers. Let's return to Acts 12. Because yes, Jesus or God has answered their prayers. Peter arrives at the house. He knocks on the gate. The prayer meeting is still going on. A slave girl called Rhoda comes running out to the gate. She recognizes Peter's voice and is so excited she runs back in without even letting him in. It's almost comic, isn't it? 
that little cartoon was quite funny. If you can't read, it says, Peter behind bars was easier getting out of prison than into Mary's house. It's kind of funny, but it's not. Because the truth is that when Rhoda tries to tell the first Christians that Peter's outside, they refuse to believe her. Picture the scene. They're in the house. They're praying for Peter's release. Rhoda comes and says, he's free. No, he's not. (laughs) You're mad. Do you think prayer actually works? I don't know if they actually said that. But that's certainly the sentiment, isn't it? Look at how they go through. Rhoda, you're crazy. You're mad. No, no, it'll not be Peter. It'll be his angel. And they try to explain away as best they can that their prayers could have been answered. This story is a, a powerful reminder that God is a God who can do immeasurably more than all we ask or can even imagine. Acts 12 is a powerful and profound reminder of the truth that God answers even unbelieving prayer. Our assurance that our prayers are heard and answered is not so much connected to our faith, but to the faithfulness of the God to whom we pray. Steve Nation has written a brilliant little book on the prayers of the early church. In it, he writes these words. He says, it's not primarily the amount of faith we have that counts, but who we have faith in. Dennis Johnson goes on to note how it is good news for the church today with a faith that is often weak and feeble, that the welfare of the church rests on God's faithfulness and not our feeble faith. This is possibly one of the most dramatic stories in the New Testament. In my mind, it's a story that does rival the plot of the best movies and box sets. It has it all. Comedy, tragedy, drama. But it's more than just a good story because it's powerfully instructive for us today. It is a call to the church to pray together. It is a call to us as disciples of Jesus today to come and pray with and for each other. While most of us will probably never be in a physical prison like Peter, in fact, most of us will go through life never knowing a prisoner. And yet tens of thousands of our brothers and sisters find themselves incarcerated today, sitting on death row simply because they refuse to disown the name of Jesus. The story of Peter and Rhoda and Mary is a call to each of us to pray earnestly for the release of those brothers and sisters, trusting that God can do immeasurably more than we all ask or imagine. The story is also a powerful parable, isn't it? Because while we may not be in a, a physical prison, many of us live in or know people who live daily in mental prisons, prisons of darkness and distress and depression and addiction. The Bible often talks about how sin keeps us bondage. It's a popular image. For those who have trusted in Christ, we have known the great truth of Charles Wesley's hymn that we will sing in a minute. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. What a truth. But maybe you're here this morning, and it's a truth that you don't know. 
Maybe you're here and you know you're still in that dark dungeon of sin. The good news is that Jesus has come to set prisoners free. He still smashes chains. He calls us to trust in him and know the joy of living life in true freedom. In fact, he invites us to feel those broken chains, to rise, go forth and follow him. Perhaps you're here this morning and your heart is heavy for a friend or family member who remains in a dark prison. Let's learn from the earliest church to be confident and trust in Christ, to relinquish control, though that is often hard, to seek the one who is both sovereign Lord and loving Father. Pray to him confident that he can and he does immeasurably more than we all ask or imagine. Let's pray. Father, we confess this morning that often our prayers are faithless and feeble. We allow things to come off our lips that if we are honest, we don't really believe. So, Father, we pray with that man in the gospel story. We believe, but would you help our unbelief? Would you increase our faith this week to pray big prayers? Lord, we pray for all those this morning who find themselves in the darkness of sin. We ask that you would shine the light of your glorious gospel into their hearts. For those who feel in bondage, that you would set them free. For your glory and the fame of Jesus. Amen.